0: Well, hey, go ahead and uh, turn to James if you have your Bible. If you're on a device, you're new. We're in the ESV version. If you want to go, go that route. Keep up with us. It's James one. We're gonna be looking at two verses this morning. We learned last week we were talking about being doers of the word and being doers who act. Over James told us, hearers who forget. And we learned that. How do, how do we make that shift from just being people that hear the word of God to actually being doers of the word of God is number one, we, we need to love and we need to treasure Jesus. That's baseline for us. It can't just be something that we just do because it doesn't necessarily mean that our hearts are being changed or shaped or made to do it. It could just be an external thing. We're going to actually be diving into that a little more deeply this morning, but to become a doer rather than a hearer means we have to love and treasure Jesus we need to be knowing and growing in God's word. And then three, we need to be embracing and embodying his grace, what we just talked about, what we just sang about a minute ago. And so today is a warning to us about having a religion that is pure and undefiled over a religiosity which at the end of the day is just empty words, it's just fronting, it's just saying I'm this, but then I do this, which actually puts into question what I say I do and who I, I am. And the reason for that, the reason why we struggle with religiosity, which is how we, we define religiosity, it's adopting a religious belief without acting on those beliefs from an inner transformation of the heart. And that's really what James is going to be driving at through this whole book. And the reason for that is we have broken thinking. You understand that? You realize that? Our thinking is broken. It's inconsistent with God's word. We have this flesh and spirit tension that is just sort of coursing through our veins all of the time. And it's because of broken thinking that we sometimes cave into religiosity instead of living out what James calls pure and undefiled religion. Don't, don't get, don't get you know, too weird about the word religion, what he's talking about when he says religion is just an authentic Christian faith that is lived out. But there's inconsistencies because of our broken thinking, because of that tension between the flesh and the spirit, right? Some of you probably saw the Great Pumpkin You know, Charlie Brown, it's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, over the last uh, month. And uh, one of the things we see with Linus is that he believes in the Great Pumpkin, right? He writes letters to the Great Pumpkin. Year after year, this dude goes to the pumpkin patch and waits for the great pumpkin to rise up out of the pumpkin patch and deliver toys from him. He's a little confused. We obviously know that that is the work of Santa Claus. And Linus hasn't embraced that And yet year after year, if you watch the special every year, you notice like he's not made any progress. Every year, Linus goes to that same pumpkin patch. He's able to fool Sally, to hang with him the entire night. And sure enough, the great pumpkin never comes. There's something broken in the thinking of Linus. There's something inconsistent, even though his friends around him are telling him, he ain't coming, man. The great pumpkin's not coming, it's broken thinking. What Jesus does through the work of his word, which is by the way happening right now because we're opening God's word, but what Jesus does through the work of his word is repair and redeem broken thinking. Because broken thinking leads to an inauthentic faith. It leads to a religion that James is gonna tell us this morning that is worth nothing worth nothing. He doesn't say, well, it's worth something. He says, nothing. So for us as a church, to always be leaning into godly wisdom means we have to be willing to unpack thinking that is incompatible with the mind and the heart of Christ. It's the willingness to say, hey, look, my family, I grew up with a family that taught me something that in the end, even though like I love mom and dad, it's inconsistent with scripture. Because it's calling me to act or not act in a way scripture compels and commands me to act, right? Or to keep it current and controversial. Um, I'm aligned with a political party that has held a belief or many beliefs that are out of line with what I see when I look at the character of Jesus. That's not me telling you how to vote. But when we allow broken thinking to become the beliefs we live out with no self-examination, when we ignore self-examination, it baffles the world. And it baffles the world into asking essentially these two questions. One, if you're really a Christian, why do you think or do that thing that you think and do? Or it causes the world to ask this question. If you're really really a Christian, why why don't you think? Or, or, Or do that thing that you're not doing, right? And this is where godly wisdom instructs us. It allows us to be honest about what we believe, how we live, and then to be humble enough to admit when we're wrong. And then, wait for it, pivot to living a life more consistent with the life of Jesus, to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves, like James told us last week. It also means some people are not going to be happy with you, right? Because living an authentically Christian or a pure and undefiled religious life, as James puts it, puts you at odds with those who have chosen foolish ideologies to be their guide. Here's James's main point for us today is a person whose religion is pure and undefiled will be revealed by fruitful works over false words. In other words, a Christian while looking like everybody else, I mean, I'm looking out here, you guys all look like everybody that I saw all through the week, right? So a Christian while looking like everybody else needs to be living unlike everybody else, right? So we have a silver 2014, just keep the envy at bay, kids. We have a silver 2014 Ford Escape. And we've learned that so do approximately one billion other people, right? Which means one of the first world problems that we have when we park in a huge parking lot is we can never find our car. You know, I know what you're gonna say, hey, there's ways to get around that. We're not that bright. I mean, seriously, there are times when we are wandering for what feels like hours trying to find that thing, right? I mean, we find tons of them, just none of them are ours, right? Except when we have our bike rack fastened to the back, this little broken down bike rack we have. That thing sticks out like such a sore thumb that all we have to do is find the bike rack, and we know we have our beautiful 2014 Silver Ford Escape. What distinguishes a doer of the word from a hearer only? James gives us three things that tell us whether a Christian's religion is authentic or just like we talked about a minute ago, religiosity, right? Which is, again, adopting a religious belief without acting on that belief from an inner transformation of the heart. Let's pick up in verse 26. Here's what James says from God's word. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So this is what we're going to do in our time. We're going to look at three signs from James here that a person's faith is not fake. And the first one is this, they control their tongue. An authentic faith is one held by a believer who knows and practices how to control their tongue. Turn to James 3, verse 6, because we're going to tease this out sometime in the new year. He's really going to tease this out. But turn to James 3, 6, and he says this. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of light and set on fire by hell. James, tell us what you really think about the tongue, right? Verse 7, for every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. He goes on to say this, it is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Then he says this in verse 11. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water so he's showing us that what we say with our mouths comes from a spring of what's in our hearts which gives evidence to what is in our hearts Jesus said in Matthew 12 33 he said look either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit We're going to know what kind of tree the tree is by the kind of fruit that it produces in the spring. He was talking to the religious leaders. He said, you brood of vipers, you snakes, Jesus said. How can you speak good when you are evil? How can something good come out of your mouth when your heart has nothing but evil that's being produced in it? He said, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth is speaks. And that's what James is driving at here. A pure and an undefiled and authentic faith is one where somebody controls what comes out of their mouth. Proverbs ten nineteen says this, where words are many transgressions is not lacking. Sin is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. So what does a person who bridles their tongue look like exactly? Well, a couple of things. Number one, they they pause before they speak. They pause before they tweet. They pause before they post on Facebook. Secondly, they don't always speak their heart. Brother, I'm just trying to keep it real here. Well, why do you think the thing you're trying to keep real isn't coming from a fountain of unrealness that has been cultivated in your heart? And number three, the person who bridles their tongue is someone who wants their words to be winsome instead of a weapon. Man, that's tough for us in this day and age, isn't it? Because here's what we see from an unbridled tongue. We see that an unbridled tongue doesn't build up your brother and your sister. We see that an unbridled tongue doesn't rightly reflect the heart of Christ. We see that an unbridled tongue doesn't create peace with its words. Listen, it is a worthless Christianity where words don't match our worship. That's what James is saying here. So three signs that a person's fake is not fake is that they control their tongue. Secondly, they don't ignore the needy. They don't ignore the needy, the underprivileged. In Psalm 68 verse five, we're reminded of what the heart of God is towards those who are in need. And this is what the verse says. He is father of the fatherless and protector of widows. This is God in his holy habitation. So when we are people that personally invest and care for those who are underprivileged, who are needy for the orphans, for the widows, the reason why James calls out the orphans and the widows is because they would have been some of the most vulnerable people in that particular time within that society. They had no recourse It's the way society was structured. And so one of the characteristics, one of the signs that your faith is not fake, that you're not merely a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word, is that you won't ignore the needy. Turn to James chapter two. Again, we're gonna be getting into this probably in the new year. Verse 15 says this. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them hey go in peace be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body what good is that so also faith by itself if it does not have works is dead you see what James is doing there he's getting us into the tension of what it looks like to be somebody that says, I care about these things, I'm all about these things, I go to this church, I identify with this God, but then when we look at the actions, they just don't match up, right? When we give ourselves to caring for the underprivileged, the needy, the orphans, the widows, we are number one, showing that compassion is more important in our lives than comfort, than personal comfort. Secondly, we're getting close to the people that Jesus got close to. These were the people that Jesus pressed into, that leaned into, that sought out. Man, I I like being around people that are like me, right? Why is that? Why do you like being around people that are most like you? Because it's easy, Because it doesn't require you to have to give something of yourself to fill what another person may be lacking. And it keeps you away from a sense of awkwardness and uncomfortableness. It allows you to not be reminded that there are people in the world that don't enjoy what you enjoy. Those are hard spaces for us. James is telling us, how our hearts should be so moved if we claim the heart of Christ. What good are well wishes? I like well wishes. But when you give well wishes to somebody who needs more than a wish, what good is it? Because here's the thing, you are not just a spiritual being. I'm not just a spiritual being. We're holistic. We have lots of needs. We have spiritual needs, emotional needs, physical needs, right? We're embodied souls. We have a body here that needs some stuff. It matters that our physical bodies are well cared for. So to make a value judgment on who we think deserves our care, well, that's decidedly anti-Christ, right? Well, they got themselves in this predicament, Ronnie. Ronnie like you've gotten yourself in this predicament of a dead faith. You need Jesus to fill you with the food of God's grace like the underprivileged need the grace of God's food, clothing, and care. How can we not care for those that God has given us so much grace to as a way, as a conduit to shower that grace and return that grace onto them. How can we not do that? What does it say about our faith? What does it say about what we believe about God? What does it say about the way that we have received the grace of Christ? What did I say a, a, a minute ago about this, this idea of, of being these wretched sinners that God just showered us with grace pulled us out of the wreckage and the death of our sin and saved us. What does that say about us if we look at somebody and ignore the plight that they're in? James says that's a dead faith. Thanks be to God because God's grace resurrects dead faiths. So we don't have to be in despair about that other than knowing. We need to be aware of it. Thirdly, one of the signs that our faith is not fake is that we actively pursue holiness, James says. We're not polluted by the world. We don't become stained by the world. 1 Peter 1.15, Peter says, he who calls you is holy, And then he says this, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. It's a weird word for us, right? Holy? That's something you think that guys like me in my profession are pursuing, right? Isn't the pastor, doesn't he have enough holiness for us? You see the way I'm dressed, right? Right? I don't got enough holiness for me. But holiness is a strange thing for us. It's something that we receive as being this religious thing that's applied to God or some other denominations that we've like stepped away from because they use the word too much. But to be holy is to be set apart, to be holy is this act of becoming more like Christ. It's a thing. It's a thing that we are commanded, according to Peter here, that we need to pursue. It means we're becoming more like Jesus in our words, more like Jesus in our heart, and more like Jesus in our hands, which is exactly what James is describing here. And here's what we know about holiness. Here's what we know about the pursuit of holiness, is that pursuing holiness, it doesn't remove you from the world, right? Like substance is not a bubble, We're not here to hide out from all the evils of the world. We're here to become equipped so that we can enter in and we can be a light for the brokenness that exists. And we know something about that brokenness, don't we? We know something about that brokenness because of how God's grace transformed us out of it. So pursuing holiness, it doesn't remove you from the world. If it does, that's not holiness. It doesn't remove you from the world, it actually makes you less worldly. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world, John says. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He sounds like James. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desire of the eyes and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, John says, but it's from the world. Then he says this, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God, in other words, what James is describing here, whoever has pure and undefiled religion abides forever. So pursuing holiness doesn't remove you from the world, but it does make you less worldly. And second, it makes you more inviting to the world. Matthew 5.15. Nor do people light a lamp, Jesus says, and put it under a basket, but on a stand. Why on a stand? Well, Jesus tells us, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God, your Father, who is in heaven. So this is what it means to pursue holiness and to see yourself as you are, as the redeemed person you are, as the light of Christ that you represent and reflect. It's important that you know that, about yourself. Jesus has paid that price. He has removed that stain. Though your sins be as scarlet, you are white as snow now. That the grace of Christ has cleansed you and redeemed you. And so by pursuing holiness, it's letting our light shine before others. So for some of you, Keeping yourself unstained from the world means a few things, right? It can mean a whole bunch of things. It means putting off things like youthful passions. Things maybe that have dogged you and followed you from when you were a kid. Or maybe you're younger and you have these temptations in your life that have become new things and you need to be guarded you need to be warned. Because that's something that's going to stain you. That's a worldly influence that's going to stain you. For some of you, you just need to repent of your rebelliousness. And some of us just have a rebellious spirit. And we just, we just shrink under authority. Even in the church. You don't like that there's leaders in the church. So anytime we have to say something, you just immediately just kind of feel like you're doing that on us. Well that's a worldliness that we would call rebelliousness. Some of you guys need to look at where you're at with things like greed, your pursuit of money, or envy. When you just feel like all the time you're just sick with seeing what everybody else has around you because you don't have it, God hasn't given it to you. For some of you it's slander. Man, you just cannot keep your mouth shut about your opinion of other people and that spreads. Did you hear about? Did you, have you talked to? All those are stains of the world. Putting away patterns that have become strongholds in your life that rule you. We have to be diagnostic in our faith. We have to ask questions about our faith. We need to bring other people in to help us ask those questions. We need to ask questions like, man, who have I been hanging out with? Because that matters and that makes a difference. What have I been eating and drinking? What have I been exposing my eyes to? Where am I seeking my comfort and my pleasure? Comfort and pleasure is not bad. It just depends what it is and where we're seeking it and how much it's controlling our hearts. Is Christianity just something I do on Sunday, man? Like, you know that authentic Christianity requires work, right? Remember last week when I said, man, I I get so uncomfortable saying that? Because I'm uncomfortable saying that, it's broken thinking in me. So I got to make sure that I'm correcting that. Because I've been called to be the pastor and the preacher here at this church. And if all we're doing is saying grace, 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 and we need to always say grace, 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 then we're not really calling you to obedience. And you can be somebody that is just running on the fumes, I will call it, of God's grace without having any gas in the engine. You're eventually going to putter out. But authentic Christianity, it requires work. To become more like Jesus means becoming less like anything that makes you less like Jesus. We would call this obedience. We would call this sanctification, which is this obediently working to become more like Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. The grace comes in because you're not doing it to earn his favor and his love. The grace comes in because when you screw up and you fail royally, you're not cast out. You're still a son. You're still a daughter. Romans 8.13 says, By the Spirit, we put off the deeds. By the Spirit. By the strength that's not even in us, except for the Spirit of God in us, we put off the deeds of the body so that we will live. Paul tells us in Philippians 3.14 that he presses on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says this. This is encouraging. Let those of us who are mature, let's think this way. Let's remember that we need to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call. But then he says, and if anything, you think otherwise. If you haven't reached that level of maturity yet, God will reveal that to you. That's where the grace comes in, right there. This is tension, though. This is tension. Do you realize, as a Christian, you're just going to be living a life of tension, It's tension because we're so afraid by our doing, maybe I'm just talking about myself, but we're so afraid by our, quote, doing that we're going to miss God's grace. And yes, that can happen. But it's in our doing that we experience God's grace. I remember there was this time we, I grew up in this sort of rural part of Southern California and we were, we had some land and it was sort of on the side of a mountain. So it was kind of worthless land, right? And um, I really wanted this bike, man. And so my mom and dad said, they said, all right, if you, uh, man, the, the, the whole mound, the whole side, it was about an acre, you know, of the house. It was kind of a mess. And uh, I don't know, they must have thought I was some kind of an amateur landscape or something. But they said, hey, if you want to like weed the mound, get it looking all sweet, you know, you got all summer to get there, um, we'll get you that bike for when the school year begins. And I proceeded to, I think, not even pull one weed uh, that summer, right? I didn't put any work into it. I didn't get the bike in September. At the same time, I wasn't less loved by my parents. I mean, maybe, I don't know. Just hoping, hoping I wasn't. I'm just assuming I wasn't. I wasn't any less their son, right? The DNA didn't get swapped out because I wasn't on the mound pulling weeds for the summer. But I needed to do the work in order to get the prize. And actually beyond that, and more important than that, to have my character built and shaped by doing good works. My parents were inviting me in to something that would give me joy. When you think about it, because all these illustrations can break down, so follow me here. I wasn't really earning the bike. My parents already had the money for the bike. So in a sense, I wasn't really earning anything. I was doing something that was going to help beautify our home, actually. And build my character. The bike was just a a byproduct of that. Paul tells us that we press on. And how we press on is by doing the work of putting off the deeds of our flesh. And the reason why James and Paul and Jesus, and the reason why they talked so much about this, and James is just another version of all the same words that we hear from Genesis through Revelation, is because religiosity is always going to be a threat to authenticity, always a threat. What does it mean when something's a fake? Do you ever think about that? It, well, it means it, it lacks sort of the, the craftsmanship or the, the character or depending on what it is, the, the components or the care of the original object it's trying to fool you into thinking it is. So there was this time where I used to wear uh, Ray-Ban glasses, right? Um, now I, I, wear no, I wear like Roy-Bans now, I don't know, they're knockoffs right um, the reason why is because my wife bought me a couple of pairs of ray-bans back in the day and i lost i lost both pairs of them pretty quickly and so that's a whole other thing that'll be a whole other sermon that i get into at some point but let me just tell you man the roy-bans are not like the ray-bans they don't fit good you know, the, 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 uh, you know the, the lenses sometimes pop off, you know, the little screws, you know, come off on the, what is it, the arms. I don't have my glasses technology down right now for you. Um, the point is, is that th- there, there's no mistaking them for what they're trying to be. They're not Ray-Bans. It's just when I lose them, I'm out like $7 rather than like, I don't know what Ray-Bans cost. They're a lot. But there is an authenticity that we see in the Christian life, that can be faked. Because when I'm wearing my Roy's and like Ray, Ray, the irony, right here in the front row. Like if I'm sitting here and I'm this far away from Ray, Ray's not going to know that I'm wearing Roy's and not Ray's. This is going to get really bad if I keep going with this. Ray's like, no, actually, I'll know I'm a Ray Pan aficionado. But he's not going to know. That's what's so dangerous. That's why James's language is so sharp here. Because you all can fake it. And I don't got some extra word from God. I don't know when you're faking it. But it's going to bear itself out, isn't it? It's going to bear itself out. Where do we find authenticity for the Christian life. Well, ironically, it's not just found by doing the things that James is laying out for us. It's actually found, authenticity is found in affection for Christ. Affection for Christ is the springboard to everything we do. If I ever have a Sunday that you don't hear me talk about having love and affection for Jesus, you need to come up and say, You forgot to say that and then we'll have everybody sit back down. I'll turn back on the mic and I'll say it because that, my friends, is what helps us understand what grace is. It's the springboard to everything we do. Where is your love for Jesus? That's your concern. That's my concern this morning when I look into these three things that James lays out to determine whether my faith is fake or not. It's easy to fake it. It's easy to look like a fruit-bearing tree, but eventually, when spring comes, whenever that is, you're just going to be a tree without fruit. So authenticity, it has to be tied to our affections because an affectionate heart for Jesus furthers an authentic faith in Jesus. So I can do two things as we close. I can condemn you all. Hope I haven't done that. I try not to do that. But what condemnation looks like from a pastor to a congregation is it's pushing you away. It's pointing. Sometimes there's a little pointing. But it's creating a burden in you that you're not meant to carry. So although we are saying get out there and do it, be a doer, we're saying you're doing it on the basis of what's been done. So Ray Rotman, get out there and do it, man. Roll with it. Be serious about the sanctifying work of Christ and the work that you are called to do based on that love that has been poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit. Get out there and do it. But remember, when you fail, it's okay. Maybe some consequences for failure, but it's okay. You're not any less His Son. What I like to do instead of condemn is call. So, what I want to do as your pastor is I want to call you. I want to invite you to something. I want to point you to rest and to freedom. Because a call convicts, a call draws you to repentance. A call says this it says, Come back to Christ because he is the one who authenticates you. It's not your deeds. The call is saying this, see with the eyes of Jesus. Think with the mind of Jesus. Help others with the hands of Jesus. Love your brothers and sisters and your neighbors with the heart of Jesus. That's the implication of what James is saying here. Religiosity is the antithesis to authenticity. I'm not trying to use big words. They just all fit together like that. But the religion of the pure and the undefiled is found in the person of Jesus. His words, his heart, his hands. There will be no greater authentication in your life, in my life, in the life of the church. We understand what we have and who we are in Jesus. There will be nothing more compelling. There is nothing more inviting for you, considering what Jesus has done and how that moves us and it motivates us to get out there and be change agents to the glory that is Jesus Christ, amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus Christ who authenticates us. We don't have it in ourselves. We can't do all these things James is laying out and somehow find that this is what justifies us. It doesn't as much as we'd like it to in some ways. But Lord, your grace has shown us a different way. So God, would you help us lean in to that grace? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.